All right. Yeah, thank you, kids, for leading us in worship this morning. And thank you all for singing and being a part of that. We are coming today, not just to Christmas Eve, but we're coming to Ruth chapter 4. And I, I, I know, look, guys, I know I say this almost every time. This is like one of my favorite books in the Bible, okay? I really, really love the story of Ruth. And I'm excited to be closing this book out with you this morning in chapter four. Uh, but sometimes it seems like getting to the destination is the, the difficult part, right? Because all the way through this, I have been excited to talk about what we're going to look at in chapter four. And so it's not like I endured chapter one, chapter two, and chapter three. You guys had to do that. Uh, but in chapter four, we really see everything that the author has been driving us towards, everything that the Holy Spirit has been preparing for us. We see it come to fruition. And it reminds me when I was younger, growing up, this time of year was always exciting because we lived in Idaho, but all of our family lived in Oregon, and we would go visit them for Christmas. And it was fantastic. I loved getting to go to Grandma and Grandpa's house in Bend, Oregon. And there's about, it's about a six-hour drive from Cuna, Idaho, where I grew up. And we would go over there, and it was always a lot of fun to go and celebrate Christmas with Grandma and Grandpa. One year, however, the journey there was not as fun. This is a different day and age, so you need to understand that before I go too much farther with the st story. Also, I'm pretty sure the statute of limitations has run out, so my parents are gonna be safe for me to tell this story. But we somehow convinced my mom and dad to let us ride in the back of a pickup truck from Cuna, Idaho to Bend, Oregon in December. Worst decision my parents ever made. I tell you what, it was not 20 minutes into that trip that we were back there just shivering and knocking on the back window and saying, let us in. We did not get in. But you can fit three teenage boys in one sleeping bag if times get desperate enough, just so we're all clear. When we come to Ruth chapter four, I hope that it's not been that difficult of a journey for us getting to where we're at in this text. But I want us to understand something really vital. As we've walked through this, we have seen God's love. We've seen God's love that he's expressed, that he's showed, but we've also seen that then emulated by his people and seen them share that love. And we've seen God's providential care for those here in the story, but we've also seen them care for one another. And then we see this promise of redemption last week, and today we get the, all three of those kind of coming together, the love of God and God's providence, and then this redemption, it all comes to a head here in chapter four. But there's still a problem, a lingering problem that we face when we look at Ruth. And that problem is found earlier in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 23 says this, no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even to the 10th generation. Well, that's a problem because Ruth is from where? She's from Moab. 
She is a Moabite. And in and, and here, she is being shown as this one who's being welcomed in to the assembly of Israel. And Boaz is seeking to marry her, and, and he wants to become to her a husband, to be her provider of rest, and to give her what she needs. And yet, there's still lingering in the back of my mind anyways, this problem. How in the world can someone whose history puts them outside of the promise of God, how can they hope to enter in? Somebody whose ethnicity bars them from entry into the kingdom of God, how in the world can this be resolved? And that to me is a problem that hasn't been resolved yet as we've looked at chapters one through three. So let's look at chapter four. Let's see if that is also resolved as we bring all these strands of thought together. And then as this comes to the forefront for me, let's look and see if in this text there's going to be resolution. Now, if you remember, when we finished chapter three, Boaz, he he goes and he's going to solve this. And Naomi says, hey, don't worry. He's going to take care of it. He says he's going to redeem you. He's going to make sure that it happens. And sure enough, Chapter four opens with this. Boaz went down to the gate of the town and he sat there. Soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. Boaz said, come over here and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Now, a little bit of background here. In a, in a Jewish village, this is where everything happened. Everything happened at the city gate. If, if you wanted to get a group of people together, you, you gathered at the city gate. It was the only, space where, the only place where there was space enough for a gathering like this. Most of it was very narrow streets. Homes were very small. And so Boaz goes to the place where people normally would gather in that day. And he waits until this one that he spoke of. Because remember what he told Ruth in chapter 3. I want to redeem you, Ruth. I want to marry you. But there is one closer than I. There is another kinsman redeemer who has a prior claim, let me see if he will redeem you. If he will not, then I will. So Boaz goes to settle this. He goes to the city gate and uh, old so-and-so, as one of the commentators called him, because he's never named, right? Old so-and-so comes by and Boaz says, hey, come over here and sit down. And then Boaz took 10 men of the town's elders and he said, now you sit here. And they sat down. And he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. If you remember from chapter 1, that's Naomi's husband. I thought I should inform you, buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do it. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it, and I'm next after you. So essentially, Boaz says, look, old so-and-so, here's the thing. All right, you have this claim, and just based on the law, you just go with me on this, every family in the tribe would have an allotted portion of the land. This was not portion that they owned, this was portion they were able to use. And he says, so Boaz says, look, hey, Naomi has this portion of field, which is strange, is it not? It's kind of weird that Naomi would have a portion of field, and yet... How come she sends Ruth to go glean in somebody else's field? If you remember back to chapter one, the problem was there was a famine in the land and Elimelech and his family moved to Moab, right? Before they would have taken that drastic step of moving, it's likely that he would have sold the rights to his field to somebody else. And so Naomi comes back. She does not have access 
access to that field because she's given the use of it to somebody else. But now, essentially what Boaz is saying is, hey, since Naomi's back, Deuteronomy 25 gives the right of redemption. And she can buy that field back, but she doesn't have the resources to do it. So, old so-and-so, do you want to buy it back? Do you want to purchase back the right to it for Naomi? Or do you want me to do it? Right? And knowing that because she's a widow and widows don't inherit, if old so-and-so buys it back, he gets the right to that land, essentially. He's got to take care of Naomi, but he gets the right to the land. So Boaz says, how's that sound? And the guy says, well, that sounds like a pretty good deal. I can expand... My property, I can expand what I get access to in the field here. Sure, I want to redeem it, he answered. Then Boaz, I don't think he springs a trap, but he gives the rest of the story. How many of y'all are Paul Harvey fans? That's a dated reference. Some of you are like, Paul who? Uh, But the rest of the story is this. Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabites." the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. Boaz says, hey, it's not just a field, it's not just Naomi, because her daughter-in-law came back with her. And if Ruth doesn't have any kids, Naomi can't have kids anymore, if Ruth doesn't have any kids, then this man's name dies out, and that's something that the law was set up to avoid, if that was to be the case, then the, the next of kin would, would take the wife and raise up a child for the son who had passed away, in this case, Malon. And so he says, if you take the field, you also got to take Ruth. And notice what he stresses. Ruth the Moabites. Moabites. To the 10th generation, their descendants will not enter the assembly of the Lord. Well, now the Redeemer, old so-and-so, he's in, he's in a little bit of a different, difficult spot, isn't he? How's he going to handle this? Because if he takes the field, he also takes the wife. And if he takes the wife, then the descendants are not his, and not only are not they not his, but in his way of thinking, they're not even going to be Israelites. And so his response is, The Redeemer replied, I can't redeem it myself, or I will ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption, because I can't redeem it. Uh, Never mind, Boaz. All yours, buddy. If you're willing to take that risk, if you're willing to redeem somebody that the Lord has said is not allowed to be a part of Israel, you go for it. I want nothing to do with it. And so then we get this strange little interaction. Verse 7, at an earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. So the redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Chilion, and Malon. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property so that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his hometown. You are witnesses today. Now, there's a lot of discussion that goes on when we look at something like this and like, acquired? 
Is this woman property for Boaz? No. Who was it that proposed the marriage in the first place? This is not Ruth's powerlessness, but this is Boaz taking responsibility. And in the eyes of his countrymen, taking a responsibility that just might, just might cut his family line off from the promises of God. That is a risky redemption. That is a dangerous move for him to make. All the people who were at the city gate, including the elders, said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephrathah, the region. May your name be well known in Bethlehem, the town. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son Tamar, born to Judah, because the, the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. Basically, and this is paraphrasing quite a bit, the townspeople say, hey, good luck. Let me know how that turns out for you. It looks like high praise, right? It looks like, and it is. There's a blessing inherent in this. May, may she be like Rachel and Leah, who were the squabbling, bickering wives. May this be like, uh, your house be like the house of Perez, who was the son that Tamar bore to her father-in-law. Oh, there's a little bit of scandal inherent in this blessing that they're giving. There's a little bit of, hey, we do want this to work out well for you, but recognize that uh, you're on some pretty thin ice here, Boaz. Rachel and Leah, Tamar and Judah. Boaz is unconcerned. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He slept with her, and the Lord granted conception to her, and she gave birth to a son. And the woman said to, women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Now, that's high praise right there. In, in, the, in this day and age, sons were essentially your guarantee against future trouble. Sons were your retirement plan. And basically, the women of the town say, hey, whatever everybody else thinks of Ruth the Moabitess, we recognize her value and her worth to you. She is worth seven sons to you. Indeed, your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him, the son. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became a mother to him. The neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the family records of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Now... Do your ears perk up a little bit when you hear that name, David? You know, you know, most of your Old Testament songs were written by David, the book of Psalms, right? A good portion of the promises inherent to Israel are bound up with the house of David, right? You know, that David, 
Yeah, that David. That's been the whole destination that the author has been driving us towards all along. He's not writing as a contemporary of Ruth. He's writing years later as a contemporary of David and saying, this is how God got us here. But you know what hasn't been answered yet? At least not in you know, black and white and spelled out for us. If David is the one, two, th- third generation from a Moabites, how can he be a legitimate king of Israel? I thought it said even to the 10th generation, they couldn't come in. Christmas is a great time for us to think about what does it mean to be part of the kingdom of God? And how in the world do we get to enter this kingdom? The author never spells it out. He never gives us the resolution. And yet there is one. The the resolution to me is, is pretty clear. The first thing we need to understand is that Boaz wasn't concerned with his inheritance. And we know his name today. Old so-and-so who was concerned about losing his inheritance, we don't even know his name. Boaz does what's right, even if it might cost him. In, In Boaz's example, we see this truth that character is proven by action. Boaz recognizes that if I'm going to redeem Ruth, it's going to cost me. I'm going to have to buy back Naomi's field from the one who purchased its use, and I'm going to have to take into my household these two women. I'm going to have to provide everything for them. So at significant personal cost, Boaz says, yes, I'm willing to do that. And then he redeems Ruth even at the cost, potentially, of his own inheritance. Boaz doesn't know that David's coming. Boaz doesn't know that years after David, Jesus is coming. And yet he does it anyways. He redeems Ruth. He redeems Naomi, even at the cost to himself, even at the potential cost to the future generations. He redeems them with no guarantee of the future. That's the first thing we need to understand about redemption is it it doesn't necessarily concern itself. It doesn't necessarily concern itself with what's fair or even what's wise, what's prudent. Redemption takes what is the greatest risk of all. Taking that which at great cost to oneself may or may not be of benefit to others. Jesus is a descendant of Boaz, but Jesus is first and foremost the better Boaz. Jesus shows us this very same kind of redemption, a redemption that is taking place at significant cost to oneself. Don't forget the baby born in the manger was born to die. Don't forget that the little baby whom the shepherds came to see, who the wise men journeyed to come and meet, don't forget that that little baby was going to grow up and be beaten and hung on a cross for your sins and for mine. 
For Jesus to redeem us, it cost him. And in the eyes of his countrymen, it was, it was a redemption that wasn't worth the price. The Messiah was supposed to come and was supposed to reign. He was supposed to rule. He was supposed to drive out the enemies of God. And the next thing you know, the enemies are hanging him on a cross. And they thought, this is a failed Messiah. Boaz, what are you doing marrying Ruth? Your kids aren't going to be able to be part of Israel. Jesus, what are you doing? The Messiah's not supposed to die. But God's plans were better than the plans of the world. What God has in mind is always going to be more than what you and I can conceive or what those people in Bethlehem could even imagine. Because Ruth's identity is not bound up in her history. They keep referring to her as Ruth the Moabite. But how did God see her? How did God see her? That's really the answer to the question, the riddle of how can Ruth be accepted into Israel? It's because God saw her. Her history was secondary to her allegiance. Her history was secondary to her allegiance. Everybody's like, well, you're from Moab. And Ruth says, I know. You don't have to say it every third sentence. I know I'm from Moab, but what did she say in chapter one? Naomi, where you go, I'm going to go. And your people are going to be my people. And here's the kicker. Your God is going to be my God. In the mind of Israel, your history, who your mama was, who your daddy was, what your original faith was, that was the determining factor for the rest of your life. You can't overcome it. But in God's mind, God doesn't see like we see. God looks on the heart. And Ruth's identity, maybe not in the eyes of everybody who saw her, but in the mind of God, had changed. Because she professed allegiance to him, she was now part of the true Israel. She was no longer defined as a Moabite. She is now defined as a worshiper of Yahweh. Grace has been given to her. How many of you are Jewish? How many of you still think you might get to heaven? On what basis? On what basis? Certainly not your history. On your allegiance. You don't get to enter the kingdom of God because of your genetic heritage. You don't get to enter the kingdom of God based on your grandmama's faith. You don't get to enter the kingdom of God on any consideration other than the fact that you have submitted to the king of kings and lord of lords. You have believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Your history does not matter nearly as much as your allegiance. We make this mistake all the time of labeling people based on what we know of their past. He or she was a liar and a cheat. He or she was an addict and worthless. And Jesus says no. No. 
When Jesus showed up, he didn't show up as a king in the mansion. He showed up as a king in a manger. And yet that history didn't prevent him from going on to be the name, to have the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This one who had equality with God did not consider that a thing to be held on to for his own personal benefit. Instead, he emptied himself and took on flesh. Sometimes we look at other people or we look at ourselves and we say, because of my history, I'm not worthy. If Jesus is your Lord, you are worthy. You're the one he came for. And if you think you're worthy on any other basis, then you've not actually recognized who Jesus is. Christmas is a great time to get that straight, to understand that your history for good or for ill is not above your allegiance to Jesus as your king. Ruth is changed because she says, I am no longer affiliated with that past way of life, with those old gods of Moab. I am now in Israel. I am now with Naomi. I am now serving Yahweh. This is what makes the difference for you and I as well. But there's this other character who hasn't shown up at all through the book for good reason, because he hadn't even been born yet. You've got this little boy named Obed. And just for the record, like how much did Ruth and Boaz not like their son to name him Obed? We're going through this trying to come up with a name for little baby Boone who's due way too soon. We've had some great suggestions come in so far. Probably not going to take any of them. But when you're picking a name, like you're thinking about it. And they named him Obed after thinking about it. But he's not defined by his name. He's not defined by his ancestry either. Obed is born. And it says in verse 17, by the way, who named him? I guess it wasn't Ruth and Boaz. It was actually the neighbor women. Like what kind of parents let the neighbor women name their baby anyways? They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And David became the king. David was called a man after God's own heart. Clearly, that lineage, God did not take it into account. Clearly, God accepted Obed and Jesse and David. And then David's son Solomon, who went on to build the temple for God. God's redemption reaches deep and it does so through the change wrought in us because of our switched allegiance. But there's another thing at work in Obed's life. Obed is adopted. Obed is adopted. That's what happens when Naomi takes him on her lap and she became a mother to him. The women said, a son has been born to Naomi. Obed is adopted by Naomi, and that also changes things. 
That is the thing that as David comes on the scene later and as the author is sharing his story, this is the thing that Israel would have looked like. They didn't, they didn't understand that God was going to be producing a new people out of a spiritual allegiance to the Messiah, Jesus a, a Messiah who was not just for the Jews, but was for everybody, including you and me. They didn't know that, but they can understand this. Obed is brought into the family. He hasn't done anything to deserve it. There is nothing about him that makes him worthy of it, and yet he's brought in anyways. If that doesn't sound like you and me, I don't know what does. We have an identity in Christ, and that identity is grounded in our adoption through him. We, we, we look about at the Son of God. We look at Christmas. We look at Jesus in the manger, and we, we talk about this is God's Son. It is, but so are you, and so am I. Jesus talking with some, some religious leaders of his day, he says, you're of your father. Who's their father? The devil. You're of your father. But then he says to his disciples, and yet your father welcomes you. What makes the difference? Adoption. We have been granted adoption as sons and daughters of the king of kings. You and I have been granted an inheritance, right? We have come into, we've come out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. If we have submitted ourselves to Christ, we are in a new kingdom, but our role in that kingdom is not simply as servants, as second-class citizens, we are taken all the way to the palace and the king himself sets us down and says to us, you are my child. Jesus comes as God's only begotten son in order to bring with him many sons and daughters into the father's kingdom, into the father's house. Look, Christmas morning tomorrow is going to be fantastic. It's going to be great, and it doesn't even matter what presents are under the tree. Because you have been adopted as sons if you are in Christ. If you are not in Christ, if you have not granted your allegiance to him, if you have not said, I confess you as Lord I believe you lived and died and rose again. I admit that I'm a sinner, which made any of that necessary. Lord, you take control. You're missing the point of Christmas entirely. Christmas isn't about lights and presents as much as I enjoy those things. It's about a new allegiance for us, and it's about adoption into a new kingdom, a new family. And it would be a shame if we made it all the way through this season and missed that. My prayer for you, my prayer for me, my prayer for all of us is that we not miss that. Not this year. That we see the invitation that's given to us and we respond with faith. Let's pray.